You know, nothing's missing. Nothing's missing from you or the people listening. We spend so much time justifying why we don't have what we want. No one cares. And it still doesn't get you what you want. Like, are you willing to give up the stories that don't support your goal so that you can get your goal? Anxiety is a direct link to, to informing you that you've just focused on what you don't want instead of focusing on what you do want. Welcome to the Debunking Your Growth Mindset podcast with Sean McCainbridge. In this podcast, we will unpack practical ways to help you grow and build on your current mindset and challenge old habits so you can see the potential that's within us all and learn how to get out of your own way. Hey guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, This is the very first episode of our new show, which is Debunking Your Growth Mindset. Really excited about what's ahead in terms of the guests that we're going to have. We've got a tremendous guest to kick this off, and this is Gina, all the way from uh, Whistler, Canada, and she's an NLP or neuro-linguistic programming guru or specialist, and simply put, it's the study of success and how to replicate success. So I'm sure there's some great takeaways and really practical examples that utilizes but at the very least we'll cover in the show uh, i guess a really good overview of what nlp really is so thanks again for joining us i really appreciate it right uh, gina thanks for joining us all the way from uh not so sunny whistler today sounds like there's plenty of snow up there um which is uh <laughs> fun when the sun comes out at least but i uh, really appreciate you joining us uh, i think we've known one another since about 2011 which i've seen you present and then that's obviously gone on to involve coaching for Robbie and I. We've obviously done the uh, NLP course via you over seven days, which is good. You've coached our business and, and obviously you've done a bunch of other things, including obviously uh, speaking to tens of thousands of people. You're a uh, uh, an author, uh, you're a coach, and you're an NLP professional. Uh, and amongst being a fairly handy scare, obviously residing there in uh Whistler with, with your family, so that's uh, cool. So I really appreciate you joining us, but I just sort of wanted to kick off with, I guess, uh, you. Uh, a lot of people may not know what NLP is, so how do you sort of uh, simply describe what NLP or neuro-linguistic programming uh, really is? Oh, well, good. I was going to start with the definition of the words. Um, in a nutshell, <laughs> I, I, I like to say that NLP is really just the study of success and how to replicate it. So I don't know, a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about NLP. It's, it's, it's really just a series of tools or processes or patterns, if you will, that replicate outcomes. So if you're trying to achieve something, then you would use something that could be replicated in order to achieve the same outcome. So I really just try to keep it way up at the level of the study of success and how to replicate it. Perfect. Simple, simple answer. I like that. Um, I guess, you know, from my research, and and no doubt uh, you're well aware of this as well, uh, my understanding is presidents, actors, musicians, business people, sports team, and so many other people have utilized NLP to propel themselves towards their goal or replicate success or achieve success. Um, Can you sort of share what types of people or organizations you've personally coached or trained? Uh, sure. So really, the, the commonality between the people that train to learn how to do this is that they're looking how to do something, get some sort of goal faster and with less effort. And so these techniques do that. Um, I also, myself, I have private clients 
And so those private clients are scattered around the world. And the string that connects my, my private clientele is that they're already successful people. Like, as you know, they're extremely successful people who are running either pretty big businesses or are high up in a huge corporation or big sport athlete or whatever. Um, so there are already people who achieve success in their life, but they're trying to move to the next level. And that next level eludes them, not because they don't know how to get success, but, but, but they don't know how to get out of their own way. And so my private clientele have this commonality of already having a blueprint for success, but but confessing to me that they're not really using all of their potential. And so the work that I do with them privately is using NLP and some of the other tools is to help unlock what's between them and what they want. Uh, that's kind of blind to them in the same way that, you know, a fish doesn't really know it's in water. So, uh, but the people who take NLP trainings can range from somebody who actually wants to come and increase their, you know, uh, skills as a coach or as a teacher or whatever professionally to write down to the person who just wants to take it uh, from a personal development standpoint because they want to understand how to get what they want faster and with less effort. Well, I'm going to dive into, I guess, some of the NLP components or aspects that uh, I've certainly come across over time and certainly keen to get you to sort of, uh, I guess, elaborate on some of these things. But uh, can you just sort of touch on, uh, I think this is a quote that uh, came out of one of the trends we did, uh, the results we get uh, to a large extent, the result of the language you use. I mean, what what does that actually mean uh, in a basic sort of uh, you know a basic at a basic level? Well, okay, so let you know what, we should probably go back to the definition. So I said neuro linguistic programming is the study of success and how to replicate it. But let's unpack each word, and then that'll be able to answer this question a bit better. So neural means neurology, right? So I, I always say you have a brain, you have a nervous system, you have a meat suit, right? Versus the body that you're in, and the nervous system kind of connects the the impulses in your brain to the movements that you make with your body, right? So that's the neurology component of it. Um, linguistic is language, and this is the language we use both inside of our heads to communicate with ourselves and outside of our heads to communicate with others. And then pro, uh, neurolinguistic programming. So the programming is all the habits that we use to create uh, behaviors that create results in our life. So the so they're connected. And that's the reason why it's called NLP is that basically the way we represent reality in our mind, which essentially is a communication in our mind to ourselves, is then therefore kind of transferred from the impulses in our mind through our nervous system to create behaviors which create results. So therefore, when we use language uh, to represent reality, we are essentially telling our brain how to interact with the world around us and therefore restricting or opening up the pathways to the results that we're ultimately going to produce through our behavior. I mean, just picking up on that and, and taking that a step further, I'm keen for you to elaborate a little bit on the power of choice. You've talked a lot about that in your training and whatnot, and also maybe just touch on the process of creating positive change or, or new habits and something that we sort of talk about uh, and you sort of show in a pictorial sort of fashion is that that, that breakthrough point when you're going through that uh, process of uh, breaking through to a new level or creating a new habit uh, or whatnot. Uh, can you sort of t talk to us about, you know, the, the, the power of choice and, and also the process of uh, creating positive change or, or creating new habits? Sure. So 
I think what you're referring to is the diagram on page 165 of Thinkorsink, which is one of my books. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is it's the most it's the most referred page in the book. In fact, I should probably just put a PDF of the page somewhere up on my website. Um, so the process of change is is the only thing that I've come across in all the work I've ever done on processes that never really changes, which is ironic. So the process of going through change itself is fairly is fairly the same every single time. So you have the, the part of the process um, on that diagram, which we call point A, which is no change is necessary. You're in the comfort zone. There is no movement. And that that's fine. A lot of people get really restless in this place, which is normal. Uh, and then they don't spend much time because they move on to point B, which is realizing that you don't know how to do something and you want to learn how to do it or you want to change. And so that um, desire provides the motivation to move into the the steep part of the diagram, which uh, is the is the hardest part for most humans to cope with um, between points B and point C on that diagram, which is um, the trial and error part. So, so the the way that I like to kind of give an analogy is at point B, you're you're ready for change. You want to learn how to do something you don't know how to do. If you think about a baby who wants to learn how to walk. Um, they, you know, they don't know how to walk. They're not a newborn where their head won't even stay on their shoulders. They've developed neurologically to the point where they could be capable of walking if they could figure out the sequence that produces walking. So readiness is different from producing the behavior. It's sort of like you want to learn how to walk is different from learning how to walk. But Wanting to learn how to walk is obviously very important because it provides the motivation to do the trial and error. So there's the baby, you know, tries away, falls down, tries away, falls down. And so that's really hard for human beings because somewhere along the line between learning how to walk and becoming adults, we forgot that um, finding the sequence takes a number of trials. We want it to be a one-time thing. You know, maybe that's reflective of our instant gratification culture that we've developed, but we've stopped understanding that finding the sequence takes time sometimes. And so, uh, I've often nicknamed this part of the diagram hell in quotation marks, uh, because then I like to borrow on some really wise words from Winston Churchill, uh, which, uh, which, where he said, if you're going through hell, keep going, which I always found a very curious quote, because that's not how most people live. Most people live, um, you know, if you're going through hell, stop, quit, blame someone else. Um, but that is not how to get what you want. That's just how to continue to not get what you want. So, and you talked about the power of choice. So you always have the choice to act accordingly in your own situation and you always have the choice to pick yourself up and try again and so in this phase of the change process if you will you basically don't quit until you produce the result there there's it's literally self-correcting you do not quit until you produce the desired result the baby doesn't stop trying to learn how to walk until it freaking walks and that's the breakthrough point that point c where you actually produce the outcome but at that point you're not very good at it. So then from point C to point D is another uphill climb where you have to constantly repeat the same behaviors that work to produce results such that you become a master of them. And that discipline to become a master is also where people don't put in the time. They just want to say, oh, I want to do this, bing, and do it. But that's, that's not really how it works. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about a concept called 10,000 Hours. Right. So 
I don't know how many thousands of those hours are spent trying to achieve the result, but then I would argue that from the point that you achieve the actual outcome to the point you are a master is still 10,000 hours. It's that repetition of constantly repeating the, the outcome that works. And there is no, you know, shortcut for this. So wanting the change is an indication that the person is ready. They're ready. They have all the components right? Legs are strong, balance is ready, whatever. Now what the person has to do is find the sequence of events or the pattern or the program that, or the strategy that produces the outcome. And that is what stops most people because they, in, I don't know, some la-la land, think it should either be instantaneous or easy, or if they don't get it on the first two or three tries, they should just give up. And all of those things basically just ensure that you don't get what you want. The only way to really get what you want is to continuously um, refine your process until you produce the outcome. And then once you produce the outcome to master the process that works. Now, let's, let's wrap this all up with what you started this question with, which was about choice. You always have a choice. Every choice you've ever made in your entire life has put you in the chair you're sitting in right now. And so why would that be different for anything else in your life? right? The, the question is whether you're going to remain um, powerful and at cause for the choices you make in your life, or if you're going to give up that power by assigning the reasons why you don't have what you want to some outside force or some outside person, right? You always have a choice in how you're going to behave. And if you fall down, you have a choice to get up or you have a choice to stay down. But those are your choices. Yeah, well, I mean, just to support that in the show notes and all the rest of it, I'm going to obviously use that diagram you talk about because for me- Great. Uh, every single person I've shared that with, uh, it's just a perfect illustration of the process of change and the, the challenges and what to expect at certain stages during that uh, learning curve or whatever the case is. So I'll definitely share that. I think it's a fantastic diagram. Uh, I've had a lot of positive feedback around that. But I want to then go on to another point that I guess you alluded to a little bit earlier, I think, and I want to sort of discuss the relationship between your conscious and unconscious minds. And just sort of explain, you know, I guess the the dynamic uh, within that in terms of the goal getter and the goal setter. But uh, just taking that a little bit deeper, the importance of rapport between the conscious and unconscious minds. If you can sort of just explain that. Okay, so let's let's help the listeners with a few definitions. Um, so the conscious mind, so the mind, which is not necessarily your brain, just to be clear here, but maybe some people think it is, but I, I'm not convinced. But your mind is um, kind of two components. The conscious part of your mind, which is the part of your mind you're aware of or conscious of, right? Your imagination, your focus, all of your percent, your sensory perceptions. You know, I can look out my window right now and tell you that there's 10 to 15 centimeters of snow and it's beautiful, um, but that is all my conscious mind. Okay. And then your, un and, and the conscious mind is responsible for looking out into the world and saying, I want that right? So if I'm a skier, I look at the snow, I go, I want this. This is great, right? And so I want that car. I want that result. I want that sales job. I want that sale, okay? The unconscious part of your mind is all the rest of the part of your mind that you're totally unaware of or unconscious of, right? So this would be all of your body functions, right? We don't sit there and think about what enzymes to secrete after we eat lunch. It just happens, but luckily it happens uh, unconsciously. And breathing, we don't really think about breathing. Sometimes when we do, that's cool. Uh, but for the most part, we get breathed by the unconscious part of our mind. So it runs our body, it stores all our memories, 
and it's this the domain of our emotional uh, body, right? So it's the domain of our emotions. So these two parts of the mind are very different, though. So I talked about the conscious mind being able to set the goals, but the unconscious mind is the goal, I like to nickname the goal getter, right? The unconscious part of the mind is what brings together all the non-conscious patterns and habits and intuitions and um you know, can just far out exceeds the conscious mind's ability to process uh, what's going on around us. And so that's a very powerful part of our mind that we know very little about, or most people don't know anything about. And what NLP and the, the tools that I teach all have in common is that they integrate the conscious and unconscious mind and bring it together and make it more powerful. Because if you do something um, consciously, it, it makes it much more powerful um, especially if it's an unconscious process. And, I, and I'm going to talk about breathing because it's kind of, you know, it's it's the buzzword these days, right? Mindfulness and, and all of these mindfulness practices are, are very popular these days. And But what I want to draw people's attention to is generally in a mindfulness practice, what you do is bring consciousness to breathing, which is an unconscious process. So breathing happens whether you think about it or not. But when you bring your conscious mind to focus on your breathing, something very magical happens in the sense that you start to access the power to, for example, relax or the power to halt uh, being anxious or the, the power to access deeper creativity or stronger intuition. That all comes when you consciously do something that is typically not conscious. And that is the power of these techniques, is that you are creating this, this reconnection between these two parts of the mind, which tend to be disconnected because of the world that we live in, and the, and the part of your mind that tries to distinguish between reality and fantasy kind of maintains that separateness. And that's fine, but if you are trying to you know, achieve success on purpose, then you should probably learn about how to have these two components of your mind working uh, side by side and most efficiently versus disjointed and not at all. So I, I hope that helps. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think I'm just going to pick up on the back end of that. Uh, I think, uh, we always say keeping your words important, right? But I think in the context of the relationship between the two minds, the conscious and unconscious mind sure. and building trust and rapport, if I say I'm going to go for a run, and I don't mm-hmm. go for a run. Uh, my conscious brain has said to basically instructed to my unconscious brain that I'm going to go for a run, right? I don't go yes. for a run. Basically, I break rapport. I break trust. So if I then go say I'm going to go get up and public speak uh, uh, in sure. a separate environment, there's a lack of rapport or trust there because I've said to uh, myself in the past that I'm going to do something, but I never did it. I never followed through. So therefore, there's a lack of rapport or trust. Alternatively, on the flip side, if I do say I'm going to do something and I consistently act on that, I then build up this trust and rapport uh, between the two minds that, you know, if, if you say you're going to set out to achieve something and you consistently act on that, then that rapport and trust is much greater, right? Yeah, but it's also like training your mind to pay attention to your commands, so to speak. So if you say... I'm going to go out and do a run. And then you don't do a run. It's like training a dog, right? Like if you say it, but Mm. you don't give the treat or you don't reinforce the command, what you're doing is training your mind not to believe what you're saying. So therefore, if you say, I'm going to make a million dollars or turn a deal or get this job, the, the same part of your mind that you know, experienced you saying, I'm going to go for a run and not go for a run goes, yeah, I don't don't know if that's really what you want. Right. So there's a conflict. So you're running a program essentially to sabotage yourself and you've trained that because that's, you're not 
you're not keeping the word of what you say. I mean, you've worked with me. I say, actually, keep your mouth shut. Don't say much about what you're doing because that way you can't contradict yourself. That doesn't mean don't go for much. Absolutely go for much. But just make a goal and then just kind of honor your word and your commitment to take the actions that resulted from your development of that goal. Yeah. And, and again, I'm just going to uh, pick up on that and, and sort of leverage, uh, I guess, this uh, question with, with another. And uh, this, again, is out of the quotes from your training. Um, people, people can only actualize what you believe is possible or put a, uh, another way. And I think there's, there's different people that quote this, but obviously you do as well. Uh, the only thing standing between you and what you really want is the bullshit story about why you can't have this. I mean, what, yes. what does that actually mean? Well, I mean, okay, so I just talked about the conscious mind is the goal setter and the unconscious mind is the goal getter. So if mm-hmm. you want, I don't know, whatever, goal A, and then you constantly tell yourself why you can't have it, then your unconscious mind is going to bring you why you can't have it. it because that's the that's the actual command you're giving it, right? So it's kind of like a puppy dog, right? It just wants to bring you whatever you're asking for. I, I think at some point um, in the book, I talked about the reticular activating system, right? You can only get what you're looking for. The, the body is designed as a sort of survival, you know, survival machine to, to efficiently process information right so you only can get what you're looking for your reticular activating insure system ensures that you can only get what you're looking for so if you are constantly telling yourself why you can't then that's literally what you're going to see in your reality and that will then make sure that that is what is your outcome and and it's super easy i know that it's people don't like to hear this because um they want they want to think that there's some sort of outside force, but um, you you are you are constantly directing yourself. You said earlier, Sean, that you're in control of your circumstances. You're not. You're in control of yourself, and you're only ever in control of yourself. And the circumstances are going to be whatever they're going to be. The question is, how badly do you want what you want? Like, are you willing to give up the stories that don't support your goal so that you can get your goal? Like most people, in my opinion, are very, people are very simple to predict. The reason why they're still in pain, if you will, or not getting their goal is because they're getting something out of it. They're gaining something from the situation. Even if it's just being right or being right. I see, I told you I wasn't good enough. Just, just that alone can be enough gain from a situation to prevent someone from pushing through uh, the breakthrough point. How do you how do you coach people or bring uh, and there's a, a, another great saying that uh, you always use you always ask this question how's this working for you so you say <laughs> that you're, you're 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 being right I'm not good enough and 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 that's manifesting self fulfilling prophecy yeah you know I'm not good enough time and time again but then you say this question how's this working for you so what are you seeking to achieve with that question and then what follows from there. Well, so people call me all the time, right? And ask me for advice or whatever. And I don't give advice ever uh, because I can't pr- pretend or presuppose to know what, what your model of reality is, right? I, all I can do is, is ask questions and, and possibly assume. So I don't have a predetermined judgment of what is right or wrong for you. I have my own personal opinions, but they're irrelevant in my professional capacity. So I come to every situation, every audience, every private client meeting, every training with a blank slate. So 
you tell me what it's like for you. And then I'm just going to ask you, how's that working for you? Because as I just said earlier, people are very simple. If the pain of the problem exceeds the gain of the problem, they will solve that problem immediately. It will become the number one priority in their life. And if it's not the number one priority in their life, then what that tells me is there's some kind of gain that's still exceeding the pain, even if the pain seems very, very bad. And so what, how's that working for you is a question I use to help people get present to the pain because we kind of like, you know, mute it or just skip over it. So uh, how's that working for you? I, I don't know what's right for you. People say, well, what should I do? Should I quit smoking? Should I not? Should I do that? I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I'm not attached. I don't think you should do anything. So I'm a neutral, I'm a sort of a neutral uh, bystander. And I'm probably one of the only people in your life who doesn't buy into your bullshit. I don't buy into why you can or can't. I'm not attached to whether you should or shouldn't. And so for the first time in your life, you're looking at the blank slate going, ah, this isn't working for me. And as soon as that becomes present, the motivation to change goes through the roof. Yeah, and I think uh, the other thing you sort of talk about within that is I think humans are driven by certainty and the need for certainty and predictability. And even though a certain pattern of behavior might be playing out and not working for us, it's certain, it's predictable. We know what to expect. And it takes an element of vulnerability to change that pattern and take that leap of faith to go through the, the process of change to arrive at a different destination so I think uh, many people probably cling to that uh, certainty of a program that's working but not working that well for us because it is predictable and there's an element of comfort on that. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I can't remember which one of my books I wrote about um, that. Like, we, we predictability is, a, is, again, it's a function of our survival. And so absolutely. And, and being predictable is important. But the thing is, but there's a point as an adult where you are consciously aware of the fact that that is, you know, comfortable, if you will, and you decide to act anyway because what you want is bigger and more important than being predictable. I sort of say it's like the it's like the 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 battle between your head and your heart, right? Your heart knows one thing, your head knows another thing, and so it, you know what are you going to choose? What's more important to you? Yeah, and I think uh, the other thing you used to sort of demonstrate, uh, obviously, some of this aspect is, uh, is is the two circles, and you've got this uh, one circle that you've got this comfort zone, and then you've got this other circle to the I think the uh, the top right of that, um, and that's uh, um, where the magic happens, and, and obviously getting yeah. out of the comfort zone <laughs> is where the magic happens, and that's where you grow. And I think you know one of the things I'm driven by is not having any regrets, and I think uh, ultimately. You do feel nervous, you do feel a bit vulnerable, you do feel a bit anxious, uncomfortable, but that's just a signal to say that you're growing and you're moving forward uh, versus just staying in that comfort zone and, and having that regret of, you know, I stayed in that place but nothing had really changed, but I wish I had done this, I wish I had done that, and I think that's where regret kicks in. So I think that that uh, illustration just sort of depicts, you know, the importance of, you know, you know growing and pushing and being uncomfortable because that's a sign of growth. Right, well, and, you know, um it, the the I, I, there's two things I want to say about that. That's that circle diagram you're talking about. It makes me think of um, the phrase: "You can't leap an eight foot chasm in two four foot jumps." Right? At some point, you have mm. to just you have to just go for it. You know what I mean? Like you 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 you, you have to let go. What you know? A, sh a ship that never leaves the harbor, never sails the seas, things like that, never sees the sunrise. 
Um, so at some point you just have to go for it and do it. And, you know, I don't think that you ever regret the things you do. I think you regret the things you don't do. Right. Um, I don't know who it was that actually said that, but it's a pretty famous, uh, thought pattern, right? You, you, you will look back on your life and it goes the same way for cause and effect, which is like results versus the reasons why you didn't get results. Nobody at the end of their life wants to talk about the reasons why they didn't get, you know, that that's not what they're most proud of. They talk about all the things they did do or the things that they wished they had done. And that is um, where regret is. You're never going to say, I'm sorry, I went for it. You're going to say, I'm sorry, I didn't go for it. And I, and I think back to that comfort zone piece a little bit of, and, and also the notion of choice. I think when you're faced with that predicament of being uncomfortable, getting outside the, the, the metaphorical uh, comfort zone, it's a choice, right? You either cling back to the comfort zone and retreat or you step outside that comfort zone and be uncomfortable and vulnerable, but that's a sign of growth. But either way, it's a choice. And I think uh, when you're conscious of that, it it becomes much more apparent that it's up to me. I either do or I don't, Um, but uh, it's within me to do that. And I've got to make that choice. If I don't, it's on me. Well, and like the... You know, you you basically, you do or you don't, and people who don't have goals never experience discomfort, right? So often when I'm speaking on the stage, I'll use a chair as an obstacle. And I'll say, if if I'm standing here and I have no goal, I'm never going to run into the obstacle. Never, because I'm not moving. So the minute I make a goal, I start to move. So when I hit an obstacle, it doesn't mean I'm a failure or a loser or, or I'm right about being dumb or all of that garbage. It means that you're moving towards something and you've hit an obstacle. So you're moving. The people who don't hit obstacles are not moving. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's uh, there's another sort of quote that sort of ties maybe into some of that. The comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. You know, exactly. you, you can stay there, you, you, you can exist, but you're not going to have any challenges or discomfort or whatever, but you're not going to move forward. You're not going to sort of grow. So I absolutely. Think that's, um, it's, it's a good point to make as well. Um, I mean, I, I want to sort of talk about maybe physiology and a bit of a brain hack to a certain extent or just being conscious mm-hmm. of what happens to our neurology when our physiology is in a certain way. So often when things don't go away, our body language reflects this, right? So we hunch over, our head goes down, we look down. Um, I, I guess I'm sort of keen to understand from your point of view what that then does to our neurology. And on the flip side, you know, you talk about this notion of sort of a bit of a brain hack of when you look up and smile and what that happens to our neurology. Can you just sort of unpack that a little bit for us, Jen? Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, when you're mad at someone or, you know, in an argument or whatever, you often look down uh, to the left or to the right and kind of, you know, crouch over and, and part of that is protection, but also part of that is really hooking into your kinesthetic. And so the, the very simple hack of looking up and smiling does two things. It pulls you out of your kinesthetic and into your visual um, rep system. And so what that does is it disconnects that intense emotional attachment you have. So it, it's a disconnection to look up. And then smiling is an anchor that links, you know, hundreds of muscles and neurochemicals and, you know, the, the, all the good chemicals in your biochemistry and things like that. Smiling activates all of that. And so by looking up and smiling, what you do is you disconnect 
uh, the pattern and you kind of flood yourself with a little jolt of positivity or positive chemicals, which then that little tiny little hack gets you a pause button, if you will, or gives you a chance, a reset button to do over, to do the minute over again. Maybe you, you have a flash of insight or you have a, uh, a you know, a brilliant uh, solution or whatever, but what it does is it stops you from going down the drain. Now that's a very, very simple hack. Um, there are obviously much more uh, impactful hacks uh, that are you can read about that people are studying this all around the world. And my fate, one of my favorite institutions is the um, Institute of Heart Math in California, um, and they are a collection of scientists and researchers bringing together other science and research all around physiology with respect to the heart. And I'm not going to get into it too much, but um, one of the the and their research supports this completely. That that when you then when you um, do their uh, um, heart breathing, right, which is very, basically just breathing slower than normal. Imagine breathing in and out through your heart, and uh, focusing on and a feeling of appreciation or gratitude. When you do this, there are real physiological changes that take place in your body that they've measured over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And the research is unbelievably compelling. Uh, and very simplistic to understand. And basically what it says in a nutshell is that when you do this practice of consciously breathing, which is an unconscious pattern, right? When you do this practice in a specific way, your body goes into a state of coherence, which is a much more efficient state than when it's normally frazzled and incoherent. And so that allows you to you know, operate more efficiently, use less energy, have access to more creativity and be less in fight or flight and so on and so on and so on and so on. So you can understand that just being in that physiological state alone will make you more successful than the average person. And that is understanding the link between when your physiology is working and when it's working against you right? If you're filling your physiology up with garbage, and I don't just mean food, right? So people often say, should I eat this or that? Should I, you know, should I drink this or that? And exercise, and it's crazy. It's overwhelming. And then I think in my first book, Secret of Successful Failing, I talked about a, to a net toxic load, right? So food, water, air, sleep quality, you know, negative thinking, all of those things put a load on your system. And when that hits a critical point, then your system becomes inefficient or, or in HeartMath's words, incoherent. And then all of a sudden, you it takes you twice as long or twice as much effort to do the same thing as someone else. So when you are um, lining up all the components to achieve your outcomes, your physiology is extremely important because that's something that we can relatively manage. And, and if you can just get that firing you know, efficiently, then you can know that that you're using the minimum amount of energy you need to run your body and all other of your energy can be used to direct it towards getting your goal. So physiology is extremely important in terms of goal getting and you need to sort out for you what's the what's the right load for you in terms of, of um, you know, all the various inputs that you have going into your body. But some of these practices like heart maths, heart breathing or a mindfulness practice or a meditation app or whatever it is that you're doing bring consciousness to processes that are typically unconscious and we don't give much thought to. And by doing that, you really, really up-level the efficiency of your body. I want to sort of move along to something that uh, I think many people suffer from um, to different degrees and all the rest of it. But 
And, and and again, another little hack, and I know that you could teach for hours on this concept, but simply if we can sort of uh, seek to describe the, um, the the hack that you've got here. So uh, when we talk about at a high level timeline therapy, how does that help people navigate or manage anxiety, particularly around events that are causing anxiety in the future? So I'm going to speak to 100 people. I'm going to speak, uh, I've got this big job interview. How does timeline therapy work in layman's terms, uh, Gina, to navigate and appease uh, anxiety as a, as a bit of a hack? Talk us through that. Sure. So, you know, for for people who don't know what timeline therapy is, it, it kind of branched out of NLP. It was created by Tad James uh, a couple of decades ago. And uh, basically what timeline therapy does is work with the concept of time storage, uh, so consciously with the unconscious part of your mind, to help you re- um, associate or re uh, get get back into an event, and so that you can reevaluate it and and have it mean something else. And it's a very powerful technique that uses this temporal perspective of time, so that time is um, how we store yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And and just the 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 process itself is extremely powerful as a standalone process. But now let's talk more generally. Uh, uh, about anxiety. And anxiety is a special kind of fear, right? So anxiety or worry uh, is another way of putting it, is is fear of the future. And, you know, Sean, I mean, I don't think you consider yourself to be a fortune teller, do you? No. <laughs> and most people don't. And so you, you, you don't really have any success in predicting the future. So anxiety is fear of things that haven't happened yet. We don't have anxiety about things that have already happened because they're over. So that, that's, just, that's just reflecting or, or living in the past. Anxiety is about fear of the future. And since you aren't really good at predicting the future, then why wouldn't you predict it a different way? right? So why would you constantly be predicting that it's going to go badly? And so anxiety is actually a warning sign that you're focused on what you do not want. Anxiety is a direct link to to informing you that you've just focused on what you don't want instead of focusing on what you do want. And so anxiety in that sense serves a purpose in alerting you that you're focused on what you don't want. Now, here's the thing. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. So why on earth will you keep focusing on it going badly? It doesn't protect you. It doesn't ensure that it's going to go well. In fact, what it does is it draws your resources and attention to having it go badly. So it doesn't serve you in any way, shape, or form. And the resulting anxiety attack, if you will, or the anxiety symptoms in the physiology of your body wreak real havoc on the real systems of your body. So it doesn't do any good whatsoever, and it doesn't protect you. So it's it's not serving you in any way, shape, or form. So what I would like you to offer is that when you feel this anxiety or this old worry, that you imagine the result that you're anxious or worried about turning out well. And if you imagine it turning out well, then you won't have an anxiety response. It's the, it's the choice to continue to imagine it turning out badly. Now, I'm not going to get into the timeline therapy process because it's not appropriate. There are a number of things we got to set up in order to make it happen. But the crux of the process is that you are in charge of your thoughts. You are in charge of your focus. You may not be in charge of your thoughts coming in, but you're certainly in charge of them once you become conscious of them. You are in charge of your focus. And therefore, once you feel this old anxiety or this old worry, then you say, okay, this is me focusing on what I don't want. So the quick fix is to focus on what I do want. Now, people will say to me, I can't do that. Well, can't means won't. 
because you can do it. You are choosing not to. Now you might be choosing not to for a number of reasons. They could be complicated. Maybe you need to get a little assistance in that respect and find a timeline therapy practitioner. Great, do it. But the truth is that what it ultimately comes down to is focusing on what you want. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. And I think in the most simplistic uh, fashion, I mean, I love how you describe anxiety, uh, fear of the future. And for me, using a, a really simple one, you know, uh, at different times in the past when I've had a public speaking opportunity, I'm nervous about what could go wrong. Will I stuff it up? Will people be engaged? Will I get my message across? Will I stumble? Will I fumble? I'm focused on all the things that could go wrong. But in essence, you know, the way I've sort of utilized timeline therapy is with your guidance is sort of transpose yourself to the end of the the, the presentation and have uh, this vision of people coming up to you and say, well done, thank you, really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. See the crowd being engaged and and, and enjoying the, the, the messages that have been sent across. There's no anxiety in that moment because you're already past the event and you're, you're at right. ease, you're comfortable, you're calm. And then so I seek to focus on that outcome as opposed to projecting, you know, some form of the future that doesn't go so well. It just sort of snaps me out of uh, an unproductive focus to a, a way more productive focus. So I think obviously we could talk about that at length, but I think in, in simplistic terms, that's been a, a great technique for me and no doubt many others. But um I want to sort of talk about uh, habits and patterns of behavior. And again, you've got this quote, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how do you sort of unpack that? And you started the, the show with uh, NLP being simply described as the study of success and how to replicate. So talk to us about patterns of behavior and, and that notion of how you do anything is how you do everything. Well, it comes back to the process of change, right? Like how you do one thing is how you do all things because everything that you're doing to be efficient is either some sort of strategy, pattern, habit, or whatnot. So, you know, when you come to that point C part in the graph and you're breaking through and you're achieving the actual behavior, I I always say make sure it's the behavior that you actually want to replicate right? Because, you know, we all have that friend who has been driving for a long time, thinks they're a good driver, but they're actually not a good driver. And they use their justification that they've been driving for a long time that makes them a good driver. But what I'd like to say is that at point C, when they were breaking through and creating behavior called learning to drive, and they were driving, they learned to drive badly. And then they mastered driving badly. And then they spent 30 years mastering driving badly. So they still drive badly. They just do it well, right? And so, um, how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you want to get a big goal, then do the little things in life the way you want to get the big goal, right? You know, in, in Empire Strikes Back, Luke's trying to raise the his ship out of the sludge there. And, and he's saying to Yoda, you know, master moving stones around is one thing, but this is totally different. And, and Yoda says, it's no different. It's only different in your mind right? So moving, you know, using the force to, to play with stones and lift them up is fun, but you know, he's got a real problem now. He's got to get the ship out of the sludge and now he, he thinks it's different, but it's not, right? It's the same process that of using the force that got the stones up. That is the same force that gets the ship up. It's all in our mind as to whether or not it's different. So, you know, practice the little things of reinforcing the habits of success, getting what you want, you know, being explicit, being, being, like I said, um, being genuine with your word. You know, if you say you're going to go for a run, go for a run. Don't say it unless you're going to do it. Train yourself to do the little things so that when you have to do the big things, you have the muscles already built in order to carry out the behaviors. Yeah. And I, and I think uh, for me, just in another sort of uh, form, 
there was a time where I felt like being organized and structured and planned uh, largely was a good thing for work to help me sort of replicate. There was a bit of a process around organization and focus on priorities. However, at home, I sought to be much more relaxed and unstructured. It didn't actually work that well for me. Uh, Ironically, uh, as you put it, you know, the structure or process or planning that worked for me at uh, work to get things done and and, and sort of uh, focus on the priorities and and, and make momentum towards things, uh, you know, at work uh, in the home front as well. Whereas, you know, I I guess I was trying to differentiate the two. I thought I could be sort of somewhat lazy or relaxed at home, but organized and structured at work. It didn't actually work. I actually took the best of what was working at work to then transpose into my personal life. I guess using that as a bit of an example of how you do anything is how you do everything. And there was a bit of a conflict because I was seeking to adopt two different strategies, um, even though there was, uh, you know, utilisation of, of that strategy across both environments, I guess, uh, as a pattern of behaviour or a habit. So Interesting. Um, that's sort of something from my perspective. But um, I think this is a really cool thing we're about to touch on there, and some people would be well across it, and maybe some people aren't. But talk to us about anchoring and state management. You know, what is this and, and how do people use this uh, to get into states that helps them, you know, essentially be at their best when it really, really counts. Can you sort of just uh, describe that a little bit for us, Jen? Sure. Well, anchoring just is a is a technique that comes from basically, you know, Pavlov when uh, when when Pavlov was um, discovering that if he rang the bell and showed the dog a steak, the steak, the, the steak, the dog would salivate, and he did this repeatedly until all he had to do was ring the bell and the dog would salivate. Right. So the bell became an anchor for the dog's. Mm-hmm. Um, physiology to salivate uh, and mm-hmm. there was no stake there anymore so anchors are everywhere they're present all over our world i mean if you ring a school bell what does everybody do they get in line and go to the, the door of the school right so an anchor can be an auditory anchor or if you hear a song from your you know high school days it could put you in that same mood or or mm. um or whatever you know that was um so those are auditory anchors we have visual anchors too right i mean pretty much everybody in the world knows what it means when they see the golden arches so those are visual anchors and they mean the same thing to everybody and then you know there could be uh physical anchors right you could have a um a physical anchor like a, a powerful fist pump or something like that, that you have connected to powerful feelings. So let's say every time you win a game or a card game or a sports game, or you get a big contract at work, or you get a date with someone you like, let's say every time you experience a win, you, you, you know, make a fist and make a fist pump or something like that. Eventually those two things get linked neurologically in the same way that Pavlov linked the bell to the salivation. So an anchor is when you link those, the, the stimulus with the anchor, the, whatever the anchor might be. And the anchor, uh, can be on your body. It can be auditory. It can be, um, visual and, or a combination of those. And so, um, once you learn how to set that up and really what you do is, is as long as there are powerful emotional states that you constantly and consistently replicate the same anchor with, they'll get linked ring bell, stake, salivate, right? So they will be linked. And so then you can use these later to call up those powerful states when you need them. So, you know, Sean, before you get out on the stage to speak to those people that you might be nervous about, sure, you manage your anxiety, you imagine it going well and you, you do all that, but then you also do your fist 
pump thing or whatever it is that calls up all the powerful emotions about winning. And that's the state you start your, your speech in. You've got a much better chance of success if you actually gear yourself up into the state you want to be in by consciously pushing that button, right? Whatever that anchor is for you. And so it's a very powerful technique as part of NLP. It's very classic NLP and people use it all the time so that, you know, you know, you, if you're slouched over or whatever, you're, you know, you could just clap your hands and sit up straight and that puts you in a more powerful state. So, so you can use these things again, these are just little hacks. There are little techniques that you pop in here, there, and everywhere that, keep you constantly on track towards your goal. Constantly keep leveraging the efficiency, the power, the energy saving techniques so that you can get what you want. Yeah. And, and, and I think uh, for the Australian listeners, at least, uh, and, and those that know them, I think Leighton Hewitt, the uh, Australian tennis player, has got that uh, famous, come on, you know, where he sort of uh, brings his uh, hand up towards his uh, his face when he's just had a good point or he's, mm-hmm. he's done something really well. But I think maybe that's an anchor for him to get into that state of performance, uh, manage through the pressure, enjoy the moment. Um, so I think that's probably a good example for those that know uh Leighton Hewitt to perform uh, at his best when it really, really counts. But right. I guess, um, you know, getting towards the end of the podcast and we've sort of touched on the, um, I guess, the notion of focus uh, and what you focus on you tend to get. And you talked earlier about the reticular activating system, which sounds like some sort of crazy um, scenario. It's hard to get your head around. But simplistically, and again, for the listeners, we'll support this podcast and the notes with the video, if we can, around uh, the dancing bear. Um, Mm -hmm. So without spoiling that, talk to us about what the reticular activating system is and, and how that sort of works in our mind and our brain. Uh, well, the reticular activating system is just part of your your physiology, and it, it basically looks for what you're looking for. I talked about it earlier. So it's just it's the way the brain um, streamlines the process of processing all the stimuli around you, right? So the reticular activating system is your focusometer, if you will, and so it does whatever you sort of set it to do. So if you say I'm going to notice uh, only white cars when I drive home from work tonight, you'll notice all the white cars, and you will really you'll be like, "Wow, that's an awful lot of white cars. I never really noticed that before." Well, it's because you weren't looking for it. The reticular activating system is a binary system. It looks for what you're looking for, and it discards everything else. So if you're looking for white cars, it discards everything that's not a white car right? So it doesn't differentiate, oh, well, that's a pink one, let's put it in the pink bucket, and that's the yellow one. No, no, it's white, not white, white, not white, white, not white. And it just does it. And so, um, you know, if you translate this over to problems, if you're looking for problems, you're going to find problems because your reticular activating system is constantly screening for them. problem, not problem, not problem, not problem, there's a problem, problem, not a problem, not a problem, 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 not a problem. So if you flip that and say, okay, I've got this problem, but what's the solution? Now your reticular activating system is looking only for the solution. Solution, not solution. Solution, not solution. Solution, not solution. It's binary. And so it's looking for solutions and anything that's not a solution just gets thrown out. And often what's in the bucket called not solutions is the problem itself. It's the reason why we can literally solve our problems in a split second by focusing on what we want, right? And and it's much harder to focus on what you want than you think. Most people think, oh, obviously I'm focusing on what I want. But that's not generally the case. You, you consciously might say something that you want, but the habits and the programs that run underneath your consciousness in the storage of your mind, right? The patterns you created through your whole life, if they are programmed to 
you know, sort of defeat you or, uh, you know, focus on what you don't want or focus on your flaws or whatever, then that is what will be the dominant pattern in your life. Now, luckily, and this is really important, um, our emotional guidance system is there to alert us when that happens. So most people don't really understand emotions. And I, and I can't stand when people talk about emotional intelligence because they aren't talking about it with any real intelligence. The emotions are a guidance system. And what the emotions will tell you is very simplistic. If you are focused on what you want and the patterns that dominate your getting, you know, doing that in your life are also focused towards what you want, then the emotional state that you will be in will be positive, something we would classify as positive, peace, love, joy, something like that. If you are saying something that you want consciously out of your mind, but the patterns that are dominant in the unconscious part of your mind based on all your past um, developments is is taking you away from that, i.e. focusing on your flaws or your doubt, your anxiety or whatever, you're going to feel an emotion we would con um, classify as negative. So anxiety, frustration, fear, whatever. And so when you feel a negative emotion, then it's strictly a communication that you are kind of like incongruent. Part of you is going forward towards what you want and the other pattern is pulling you back towards what you don't want. So there's this incongruency and the negative emotion is that communication. So what I say is the best way to handle the emotional guidance system when you feel a negative emotion is stop what you're doing. Just stop, right? Just stop what you're doing. Name the emotion so that you do so show some intelligence around your emotions. This is rage. This is fear. This is anxiety. This is worry. Because that will lead you to the next step, which is to shift that emotional state. Typically, by using any technique you've ever learned, the techniques that I know, NLP, timeline therapy, hypnosis, they're amazing. The thousands of other techniques that the thousands of other practitioners on the planet teach are also amazing. They work. So do whatever you've learned to do to shift and shift your focus, which will shift your emotions and, and wait until you have what you are looking for, i.e. a shift in your emotions, then refocus yourself, then take action, right? And that will serve you to stay on track more than anything else that I know. Just navigating your emotional guidance system, which is directly correlated to your focus, will have you stay on track and get to your goals faster and with less effort. Love it. Great answer, great answer. I mean, we talked about uh, at the start of the show before we went online, you've essentially got, you know, more than 50 days worth of content. So we've smashed a lot into a very small podcast. But I mean, is there any other key aspects before we sort of seek to wrap things up, Gina, that we haven't touched already that in your experience or your opinion, the most successful people are doing that maybe our listeners could take stock of? Well, I think I'm just going to connect this back to the beginning of the podcast, which is this. I mean, successful people... They, they, do, they do the following three things. They focus on what they want. They choose positive emotions, which is, in a sense, by paying attention to the emotional guidance system. They choose a physiology of power by doing things like heart-focused breathing or ingesting foods uh, that you know are easy for them or whatever. So they focus on what they want. They choose positive emotions, and they have a physiology of power right? That, those three things alone, that triumvirate is going to create the biggest chance of you getting what you want. But, but the number one thing that is missing in most people's lives is the taking of action. Successful people take action. They keep taking action. They, they keep taking action. They keep taking action. They keep taking action and they never quit. It's not that they quit after 30 or 50 or 70 tries. They never quit. They don't stop taking that action until they get what they want. They, you know, I, I borrow from uh, Finding Nemo, right? Dory's little mantra, just keep swimming. 
Successful people just keep taking action. They literally keep taking action over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until they get it. And then once they get it, they continue to take action by mastering that so that it becomes the unconscious dominant habit, right? Most people aren't willing to do this. So, you know, if you're, if you want a life that most people don't have, you have to be willing to do the work that most people aren't willing to do. And that is literally it is that you get out there and, you know, like the karate kid, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. So that when it's time to compete in the show of your life, you have the, the mastery of what you need to get the results that you want so that you can repeatedly get them so that you can successfully get them so that you can replicate them, which is the beginning of this call, which is a, a, a collection of techniques on how to replicate success, right? That is the goal here is to be able to replicate it. Yeah, cool. So look, uh, that's an awesome sort of way to sort of look to wrap up. But, um, you know, just for the listeners, how do people generally explore the deeper detail around the mechanics of, of NLP? And, and how do people find you, uh, Jenna? Can you sort of just touch on that quickly? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, greatnessgroup.com is the best place to start because that kind of encapsulates it all, right? It's all the corporate training that we do, the team building, plus all the NLP uh, schools and all the, it's all under one umbrella. Um, but basically what I say is learn it, go and learn it. If you want to know more about it. So there's, there's two ways to do it, right? Go hire somebody to walk you through a breakthrough and get your own personalized breakthrough, right? Like work with a private, um, uh, like one-on-one with someone and get it personalized or go sit in a classroom and learn the actual techniques underneath it all so that you can then learn how to apply it to yourself and possibly to others, right? You could learn how to use it on yourself and then learn it on, learn how to use it on others. But a, a word of warning, like one of the things that's really interesting when Bandler and Grinder developed NLP, they didn't um, trademark it. So NLP is in the public domain. And so I, a little word of warning, you get what you pay for, right? Hmm. Um, like anything in life, there are people out there that know a little bit about, and what do they say? A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. They know a little bit. They're out there. They're throwing it on you. And and I would say, you know, are they masters? Are they Have they mastered it? Yes, the certificates that I have are worth the paper that they're printed on. They don't make me a better person. But what they do demonstrate is that I've dedicated decades of my life to mastery. And so my ability to speak about this, to teach this, to understand the nuances of this is, is, is exceedingly deep. And there are lots of master trainers like me around the world who have a very, very um, uh, strong depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge, quite frankly, around the process. There are also a lot of people who don't know much. And so you kind of get what you pay for. But it's like any industry. It's not good, bad, right, or wrong. It just is what it is. There are good doctors and bad doctors and good bankers and bad days, you know, whatever. So you kind of get what you pay for. So do your homework and make sure that the mastery that you're looking to create already exists in the people who are teaching you. Um, but definitely dig into it and find somewhere you can actually practice it because it's one thing to read about NLP or even hear about it in a podcast, but it's quite another thing. And you know this for yourself, Sean, to experience it viscerally by doing the patterns themselves. So find somewhere where you can actually practice it. 
Yeah, well, look, uh, cool. We will definitely put a link to your website, obviously links to your social media and whatnot if they want to find out more on that sort of side of things or just generally follow you on social media. But look, Gina, <laughs> really appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, you've made a, a massive impact on, on my life and no doubt many other people's lives through sharing, obviously, the mastery around NLP and essentially, you know, helping us get out our, get out of our own way and, and uh, move towards being, uh, I guess, a better or best version of ourselves. So, Really, uh, you know, grateful for all the impact you've had and, and certainly grateful for you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, share some of those notions on the podcast today. So thanks again. Oh, well, you're welcome. And thanks for having me. And I just want to kind of end with one thing. You know, nothing's missing. Nothing's missing from you or the people listening. You already have all the things that you need. And one of the, you know, one of the big whys that gets me out of bed in the morning is to reveal greatness. You'll see that all over our materials, our website, whatever. You'll see it everywhere. And we very carefully chose those words because reveal greatness means that it's already there. We don't do anything. We just help reveal what's already there. We, we ultimately believe that people have everything they need. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. If you're listening to this, everything's exactly as it should be. You just need to get in touch with the capacities you already have. And sometimes what that takes is a little bit of pain. Unfortunately, that's just the design of the human being. So what, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. You already have everything you have. And just remember that there's nothing missing and you just need to reveal the greatness that's already there. Cool. Well, great note to finish on, Gina, and thanks again for joining us. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. So, guys, uh, thanks for listening to us today. I uh, really hope you got some great takeaways. Uh, really looking forward to the next guests that are joining our show um, as part of the Debunking Your Growth Mindset. And once again, if you really enjoyed today, uh, feel free to subscribe or follow us on Spotify or iTunes, and feel free to also pass on to anyone else that might benefit from the show. Uh, thanks again for listening.